Well, a certain man died and was standing at the pearly gates met by St. Peter. Peter says, here's how it's going to go down. You need a hundred points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you did during your life, and one at a time I'll assign a certain point value to each of those based on how good it was. The man says, okay. Well, uh, for starters, I was married to my wife for 50 years, and I was completely faithful to her. I didn't even cheat on her in my mind or in my heart. Peter responds, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's definitely worth three points. The man says, three points? Okay, well, let's see what else. Oh, uh, during that same 50-year period, I attended church almost every single Sunday. And not only that, I didn't just attend the church. I was in the choir for a few years. And for 10 years, I taught junior high boys. And Peter says, that is impressive. That's certainly worth at least one point. One point? Well, let's see what else. Oh, here's what happened. I started a soup kitchen in my 60s. I started a soup kitchen And at least once a month, I served the homeless at the homeless shelter. Peter says, fantastic. That's definitely worth two points. Two points. By this point, the guy's getting really frustrated. He says, Peter, only two points. Are you serious? At this rate, I'll never make it into heaven. At this rate, the only way I'm going to make it into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter starts to smile. He steps aside and says, come on in. Come on in. God is good. And all the time. need you to take out your Bibles and turn to the third book in the New Testament, the book of Luke. Uh, We've begun in recent weeks a verse-by-verse study through this great book of Luke. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, I always want you to see it for yourself uh, in a Bible in front of you, not simply take my word for it. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 if you're using one of those blue Bibles Uh, from the rack in front of you. You're welcome to borrow that. You can go to Luke chapter 3, which you'll find on page 1016 in one of those blue Bibles. The rest of you just turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 1 in just a, a few minutes. So as we've been diving into this book of Luke over the last few weeks, we've seen that Luke wrote this book for his friend Theophilus and also for you and me to show us that Jesus Christ is every man's Savior. He's the Savior offered not just to Jews, but to non-Jews, Gentiles like you and me as well. He's the Savior that came not just for men, but he came for women and children as well. Amen? He's the Savior that didn't just come for the rich and famous. He's also the Savior who has come for those of us who are living paycheck to paycheck and only have two friends on Facebook. Jesus came for you and me. He's the Savior who offers salvation to anyone who would receive him as Lord and Savior. So Jesus says it so well in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. That's the theme verse of the entire book of Luke. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus, as he was speaking to a crowd at the short guy's house, Zacchaeus, he said, the Son of Man, I came to seek and save anyone who was lost. Jesus came to seek anyone who was lost and wanted to be found by him. So as Luke is writing uh, his gospel account, we saw last week that as chapter 2 came to a close, uh, Jesus at the time was 12 years old. 
We saw that episode in the latter part of chapter 2 where Jesus at 12 years old is left behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't even realize that he was gone until the end of the day. They go back and they find him sitting at the feet of the best rabbis in Jerusalem, listening, asking questions, and even teaching them. And all of those rabbis were blown away that this 12-year-old was able to understand God and the Old Testament and theology so well. And we saw that Jesus at the age of 12 seems to have experienced an awakening. He limited himself when he came down to earth. He didn't have all the power that he had had in heaven. He didn't have all the knowledge that he had had in heaven. He couldn't be everywhere at one time like he was able to be when he was eternally existent as the Son of God in heaven. He limited himself when he came down, but it seems like at the age of 12, Jesus had some sort of awakening and realized for the first time he was, in fact, the Son of God. But it would take Mary and Joseph a while to realize that fact. And so chapter 2 ends this way. Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to Mary and Joseph. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Well, as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3, about 17 years have passed since that episode at the temple when Jesus was 12. So as chapter 3 begins, Jesus is somewhere in the neighborhood of 29 years old, and his older cousin John, better known as John the Baptist, is about ready to begin his ministry that will pave the way for Jesus' ministry as well. I'm calling this message today, John the Baptist, Trailblazer for Jesus. Make sure you have those Bibles with you and also those message notes from your bulletin along with a pen or pencil to jot down some notes and fill in some blanks along the way. So here we are in Luke chapter 3. Before I start reading, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, this is your word. It's not my word. I pray that we would have our ears open to what you want to teach us today. Lord, I thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, I just pray that you would move and speak exactly as you want to. I pray if there's any sin in my life, any sin in our lives, Lord, that needs to be purged, would you do that right now? Would you wash us clean so nothing is stopping up our ears from hearing what you want to say, so that nothing is blocking our heart from being penetrated by your word, so that nothing is clouding our mind from what you want to speak to us, Lord? We ask that you would speak and move in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, this one's going to be a good one today. Not because of that scrawny preacher up there, but because it's God's Word. Go ahead. Only three of you took me up on that last one, huh? All right, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the word... During that time, the a high, priest, a high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain shall be made low. The crooked paths and roads will become straight. The rough ways smooth. 
and all mankind will see God's salvation. In my opinion, one of the most effective and powerful preachers and teachers of God's Word living today is Chuck Swindoll. I've loved Chuck Swindoll for many years. He used to be the pastor of an evangelical free church down in Fullerton, so pretty close to us. Began his weekly and even daily radio ministry back decades ago. Now he's living in Texas, pastoring a church there. But he's been ministering the gospel for over 50 years. Chuck Swindoll's written over 70 different books. He's an amazing teacher of God's Word. And as I was reading through his commentary this week on Luke 3, he organizes John the Baptist's ministry in such a simple way. He says that John the Baptist really had two phases to his ministry. And I thought this was so simple and so profound. I went ahead and put it on your handout for you. I'm following Chuck Swindoll's outline of John's ministry. And the first phase, Swindoll points out, is John would prepare the way for Jesus. So phase one is to prepare the way. That's described here in verses 1 through 14. The second phase is get out of the way. And that starts in verse 15 and goes through verse 20. And so I thought that's just a brilliant way to organize these 20 verses that we're going to be studying together over the next few minutes. First of all, his first phase is prepare the way for Jesus. And once Jesus comes onto the scene and Jesus begins his own ministry, John's second phase is to simply get out of the way and allow Jesus to do his thing. That wonderfully summarizes what John the Baptist had been put on this earth to do to prepare the way and then get out of the way. So we read uh, in these first six verses some of the description of what took place during phase one of John the Baptist's ministry as he begins to prepare the way for Jesus. In the first two verses, uh, Luke quickly summarizes the historical and the political backdrop of John the Baptist's ministry. We look at these names, and most of these names are a little bit strange to us, but that's okay. He wanted anyone who was a historian or a geographic buff to be able to know exactly when John the Baptist's ministry took place and the political and geological, or not geological, uh, geographical context within which his ministry was taking place. And so he mentions that the emperor at the time, the, the main dude in the Roman Empire was Tiberius, He was Caesar there in uh, the city of Rome. Closer to home in Israel, in and around Israel, there were a number of lower-level kings and governors and religious leaders. Uh, Pontius Pilate was governor in Jerusalem and Judea, the area around Jerusalem. There was Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, He was one of Herod the Great's sons that was leading up in the north of Israel in that area of Galilee where Nazareth was located. There was Herod Philip, there was Lysanias, and the Jewish high priest Annas and Caiaphas. Now, one of the words you find in those first two verses is that word for governor. Notice there it's called tetrarch. And so we read this word tetrarch. What's a tetrarch? It's really just a fancy word for governor. And so when you see that word, just think of that leader described as a governor of a specific geographic area. Now, at the end of verse 2, We're told that the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. From a very young age, I think it's safe to assume that John the Baptist's dad had told him what the angel Gabriel had said about John the Baptist before John was ever born. 
Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 1. There Zechariah was as a priest in Jerusalem uh, offering the incense to God. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up and speaks to him about his son. Even though Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were likely in their early 60s, well beyond the age of having kids, the, the angel told them about this miracle that was going to take place. This wife of Zechariah's, Elizabeth, would give birth to a son in her old age. And not any son, the angel said to him, John would go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and turn the disobedient to the obedience and to get people ready for the Messiah's coming. And so I imagine that from a very young age, Zechariah passed on to his young promised son, John, what the angel had spoken to him just a few short years earlier. I imagine that as Zechariah is sitting down with his four-year-old son, John, or maybe his five- or six-year-old son, John, and he's sharing with him as best as he could remember the exact words that had been prophesied over him by that angel, Gabriel. And so certainly from a young age, John knew what God had called him to earth to do, the mission God had given him during his life. Well, since Zechariah and Elizabeth were probably in their early 60s when John was born, and life expectancy back then wasn't as long as it is for us today, John probably had both of his parents pass away when he was pretty young, maybe just a teenager. And so it says at the end of chapter 1, John went and he lived in the desert. And so probably from the age of my best guess, somewhere around 15, to the age of about 30. John the Baptist is living in the desert on his own, just awaiting God's command to go carry forth this ministry that God put him on earth to carry out. And so we read here in verse 2 that the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. After years of living in that desert, after years of waiting to see when God's perfect timing would be, somehow God's spirit speaks to John and says, John, today is the day. And how does John respond? All right, Lord, I'm ready. God says, today is the day to begin your ministry. He says, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do this thing. Verse 3, John went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, here in verse 3, there's a couple words we need to make sure we understand. Repentance, we'll talk about a little later. But the first of those words is baptism. The word baptize literally means to dunk or to immerse in something. That's what the word baptize means, to dunk or to immerse in something. And most of the time we find this word baptized used in the New Testament, it's referring to being immersed in water. Not always, but most of the time it's immersion in water. Now, baptism was a pretty common thing in John the Baptist's day, but the kind of baptizing that John was doing in the Jordan River was pretty revolutionary. It was pretty unique. You see, what happened in John's day was this. When someone was a Gentile, like most of us in the room here today, when we were not Jewish by ethnicity, if I was, let's say, uh, I, was, I was Polish or I'm uh, uh, Scandinavian or I'm Dutch-Irish or whatever it was, and I wanted to come and become a Jew, I would have to jump through all of these hoops in order to convert to Judaism. And one of the hoops you would have to jump through in those days was to be baptized in water. It was something that the Jewish people required if you wanted to convert to Judaism. But interestingly, water baptism was something the Jewish people themselves never did. 
upon themselves. A Jew would never be baptized in water because in their mind it was pointless. I'm already Jewish. You see, the Jewish people in John the Baptist's day basically said salvation for us boils down to these two things. Number one, we have to be born into a Jewish family. And if we're born into a Jewish family, number two, all we have to do is do a pretty good job of following the Old Testament law. So if I was born into a Jewish family and I'm pretty much obeying the Old Testament law, it would be pointless for me to be baptized in water. In fact, many Jews in those days would have considered it an insult for anyone to say you need to be baptized. And so here comes John the Baptist on the scene as we read in Matthew and Mark. He's a guy that's wearing camel skin. The guy's out in the desert eating locusts, flying grasshoppers and honey. This is a weird-looking dude. It's pretty clear he didn't just uh, shop at at Neiman Marcus or he didn't just come out of Macy's. This guy, he's looking rough. You know, he's, he's looking really rough. He looks more homeless than he does like a rabbi or preacher. And here this guy comes and he's preaching to a Jewish audience and he says, repent and be baptized. And most people in Israel, their first reaction would have been to be insulted. What do you mean? I'm already Jewish. I don't need to be baptized. That's for the non-Jews. I don't need to be baptized, but that's what he is preaching. His message and his method is absolutely revolutionary. John was basically saying to that Jewish crowd, everyone has to come to God on the same terms. Nobody has the advantage of being able to ride their ancestors' shirt tails into heaven. Amen? What John was preaching was absolutely revolutionary. He was a revolutionary teacher and prophet who had been prophesied about some 600 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 40. It's quoted here in the early verses of Luke chapter 3. It's a loose quote of Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 5 that says, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. Now, I've read this prophecy about John the Baptist many times over the years. But I learned something this last week about how the readers in John's day would have understood this a little bit better than we do today. I learned something new I found really interesting. In John the Baptist's day, when the king or the the Caesar in Rome decided that he wanted to travel to a different city or a different country within his kingdom to check things out, here's how the king would go about doing this. If he knew he wanted to go to a certain city or a country, he would send a courier out ahead of him. And that courier would go into that city or into that country, and that courier would announce, the king is going to be here in a few days, so you better get yourselves ready. I noticed on the ride into town, I'm right on my horse And I had been riding a nice, smooth path when all of a sudden, just outside of town, it was more like this. Ever been on one of those dirt washboard roads in the high desert? You're you're tooling along. I I was doing a visit the other day, and my GPS doesn't have a clue when it comes to the transition between an asphalt road and a dirt road. And so it says go out to Koala at the backside of Atalanto. No problem. So it had me going on Air Expressway. So I'm taking Air Expressway, and it says you'll be there in a half a mile to turn on to Koala. And I notice I've only got about 100 yards left of asphalt. 
And so I said, well, I'll take some side streets. Side streets didn't work. So I said, I guess I'll trust my GPS. And so I go onto this dirt road. The first, you know, 100 yards, not so bad. But all of a sudden, well, there went my car wash. Anyway, so we find that all over the desert, these washboard roads. And so these couriers would go out in front of the king and they'd say, you better make sure you get those roads nice and smooth because we don't want the king's hair messed up. We don't want that crown falling off his head when he's riding in his wagon. You better make sure you make these roads straight. You better make sure you get out the washboards and make them nice and smooth. And by the way, you better pick up that trash outside of town that someone littered on the side of the road. And so these couriers would go out in front of the king. So what happens a few days later? As the king comes into town with his entourage, the roads are nice and smooth. His hair doesn't get messed up. His crown doesn't fall off his head. He doesn't have to look at somebody's trash on the side of the road. That's what they would do in those days. And so with this in mind, this wonderful prophecy was given in Isaiah. Wonderful words. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. So the original readers of this Isaiah prophecy 2,700 years ago, they would have understood clearly what the voice in the desert was saying. They would understand clearly that the message boils down to this. The Messiah King is coming. He's coming. He's on his way. He's about to arrive, so you'd better make sure that your heart is prepared for his arrival. You better make sure that your life is prepared for his arrival. If your life is a little bit crooked, you'd better straighten it out. If you've got some potholes in your morals, you'd better make sure you fill them in. Your priorities have been pretty rough around the edges. You're running out of time to smoothen them out. The promised Messiah King is on his way, and he's bringing salvation with him, so you'd better stop playing around and get your life ready. He would have understood this. John's specific message is recorded for us in verses 7 through 9. Look in your Bibles, verses 7 through 9. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Real easygoing message, don't you think? Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow! I'm pretty sure that Joel Olstein wouldn't have had John the Baptist guest preach at his church. And in all fairness to Joel, there have been many times in my ministry I'm not sure I would have allowed him to come in either. That message is pretty harsh. That message is pretty abrasive. Some preaching is easy to swallow, but John the Baptist preaching was never easy to swallow. I want you to imagine a a church in town. We'll call it Victorville Community Church. Imagine this church, Victorville Community Church, and their their numbers have been kind of sliding recently. They uh, they haven't had the attendance that they used to in their glory years. And so they call in a professional church growth consultant. 
And that church growth consultant comes in and gives them some tips of what they can do to see remarkable growth in their church, to see their their ministry really thrive and become dynamic. There's a good chance if they brought in this church growth expert, he would share a lot of wisdom with them, and that wisdom would probably include these four things. We're going to put them on the screen. Uh, Number one, he might say, make your worship services convenient. Go to where the people are. You'd never want to be out in the, the middle of a ghost town on the decommissioned George Air Force Base. You'd never want people to have to drive through a half a mile of abandoned houses and graffiti to get to the church. Go to where the people are. That that makes sense, doesn't it? Number two, don't be condescending. Speak encouraging and uplifting messages. If you insult the people, they're not going to come back the next week. And so, yes, speak God's true word, but make sure you present it in a way that is a little bit more palatable and a little bit easier to digest. People don't like to be insulted. People don't like to be called out. Number three, never publicly call out politicians because politics and politicians, you know, the whole thing is divisive. So make sure you you never talk politics. Make sure you never call out politicians because that will get you in trouble. You're going to split the room down the middle. Those that are diehard Republicans will either love it or hate it. Those that are diehard Democrats will either love it or hate it. So never talk politics or mention politicians, and don't call them out under any circumstances. And number four here, transparency is a good thing, but show your congregation that you are a worthy leader to follow. There's a lot of pastors in town. You don't want them chasing after some other pastor at some other church. You know, show them that you're a worthy and capable leader and they should stay put here. Well, how did John the Baptist follow this conventional wisdom? Well, not too well, did he? It sounds like pretty sound advice when we look at these four, but you look at them one by one and you come to realize that John the Baptist did the exact opposite of what most so-called experts would have counseled him to do. John, for starters, didn't hold the worship services in a convenient location. He's out in the desert. And so he's out there in his own ghost town. And for the most part, people had to come to him if they wanted to hear the message. Everyone who wanted to hear him had to hoof it out to the desert where he was. And John didn't speak encouraging and uplifting messages. That was the second point of advice. These weren't encouraging and uplifting messages, were they? Not so much. He didn't speak uplifting messages. Look again at verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Well, I've always found it to be rather insulting to be called a snake. Okay? This is something that's pretty much across cultures and across times. When you call someone a snake, I know of no instance when that's a compliment. Right? So when he says you're a brood or a, the descendants or the sons of snakes, believe me, that's even worse. If someone was to call someone in his day a son of a snake, that is more insulting than calling someone an SOB today in our culture. It was incredibly insulting because it wasn't simply just a, a naughty word of sorts that you weren't supposed to say. It was actually getting at the heart of their character, that their character was snake-like. Many would consider that to be like a character assassination if they were called as Jews a brood of vipers. And so these are harsh words. These are condescending words. They certainly aren't encouraging and uplifting. 
And that's what John the Baptist is preaching. Uh, Maybe you could look at it this way. He's basically saying to him, you bunch of no good lowlifes. Who told you to slither over here and hear me preach? Who told you that you were this close to being burned in the fire of God's judgment? Man, the rafters are shaken with that kind of preaching, right? Ever seen the movie Pollyanna? And early in the movie, that preacher, he climbs up about 17 steps, and he's standing there almost at the beams of the church looking down on the congregation. And as he begins to preach fire and brimstone, the chandeliers start rattling, and everybody's looking around because they're not sure if the roof's going to cave in because, man, there's some fire in that preaching. That was just scratching the surface of the type of message John the Baptist preached. Would you like to travel miles and miles on foot to hear someone preach this kind of message on Back to Church Sunday? Most of us probably wouldn't want to hear John the Baptist, not just with the words that came out of his mouth, but certainly with the tone he used as he delivered those words. As for never mentioning politics from the pulpit, well, John the Baptist didn't follow that advice either. Flip over to verses 19 and 20. Here in chapter 3, notice what he happens in verses 19 and 20. It says, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, remember what Tetrarch means? He's the governor. When he rebukes Herod the Tetrarch, Herod the governor, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He threw John in prison. He locked him in prison. Now, why did John the Baptist speak out about that regional king, that governor, that well-known leader in Galilee? Because Herod was a pervert and he was a cheater. You see, Herod, we know historically that John the Baptist was referring to here. Historically, he was married to his first wife. He goes to Rome on some sort of business trip, and he begins to have an affair with his brother's wife. And if you think that's bad enough that he was having an affair with his brother's wife, his brother's wife also happened to be his own niece. So he begins having an affair with his mistress, who is also his own niece. He divorces his wife convinces his niece to divorce her husband, Herod's brother, and he in turn marries his niece. This guy was pretty messed up, and John the Baptist did not follow conventional wisdom that says, you know what, you just let Herod do his thing. No, Herod spoke out, or John the Baptist spoke out against it publicly, and he spoke out against it directly to Herod. Face to face and also in the crowds, John the Baptist clearly rebuked that, and he called it out as sin. He called it out as perversion. He called him out for what he was. He was a homewrecker. And Herod didn't like that one bit, so he throws him in jail. And not too much longer after that, has his head chopped off because he and his family wanted nothing to do with John the Baptist. Well, what about the second phase of John the Baptist's ministry? The first phase is prepare the way. The second phase is get out of the way. Well, let's pick up in verse 10. Uh, This is still part of that first phase, but once we read and get to verse 14, that'll pick up the second phase. But let's pick up in verse 10 so we don't miss any of the verses here. What should we do, the people asked. The crowd asked John. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with the one who has none. 
and the one who has none should do the, has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. A teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Notice the transition here into that second phase to step out of the way. John says, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his dwelling floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. So as for the fourth point of advice, how to draw people into your ministry, the fourth point was show your congregation that you're a worthy leader to follow. John didn't follow that advice either, did he? He didn't say, follow me, follow me, follow me, and when Jesus comes, he's okay and all, but keep following me. As I read those verses, especially 14 through 18, we see that John is basically getting out of the way the closer that Jesus comes to beginning his ministry. Conventional wisdom would dictate that if you want your ministry to stand out in the crowd, your pastor must stand out in the crowd. Your pastor must, with his words and his actions, convince people to come to him. But John the Baptist does the opposite. If you were to flip over to the book of John and look at John chapter 3, John says point blank to his most committed followers, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. Jesus must increase, I myself must decrease. Even those that didn't want to go over to Jesus once Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist was saying you need to go over to him because he's stronger than I am. He's wiser than I am. He's more powerful than I am. He can save. I can never save. You need to leave me and go to Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. What a remarkable example of humble ministry that points to Jesus no matter what. John says in verse 16, I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the fire of judgment. You might think I'm powerful. He's more powerful. You might think I'm somehow worthy, but I am not worthy to untie the laces on the Messiah's sandals. John is so clear. The promised Savior and King is coming, and I'm not him. You need to go to him when he gets you. I want to give you three life lessons that we can pull from these 20 verses that are so important. I encourage you to jot these down on the back of your handout because these are very important. Number one, lesson number one, everyone has to come to God on equal terms. Everyone has to come to God on equal terms. You see, we're not much different than the Jews in John the Baptist's day. Most of them believe they're going to automatically make it to heaven because, after all, shoot, I'm Jewish and I've got the Old Testament law. Are we much different today? We don't say I'm Jewish and I have the Old Testament, but America is filled with millions of people that say, absolutely, I'm going to heaven because I come from a Catholic family. Absolutely, I'm going to heaven because I come from a Christian family. My parents and my grandparents were Catholic, or my parents or my grandparents were Christian. 
And so I come from a Christian family, so obviously I'm going to make it to heaven too. I've been to Mass or I've been to church many times, so obviously I'm going to make it too. But John the Baptist, as he prepared the way for Jesus' ministry, made it clear that we all have to come to Jesus on the same terms. We all have to come to Jesus on equal terms. And not a single one of us can ride our parents' or grandparents' shirt tails into heaven. You cannot say to God, I need to go to heaven because my mom went to heaven. Or I deserve to enter heaven because my granddaddy deserved to get to heaven. No, we all have to stand on our own two feet. We can't ride anyone's shirt tails into heaven. Lesson number two that goes along with this, we do have to come to God on equal terms, and the way that you have to come to God is through faith and repentance. Through faith and repentance. You must place your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You will never get to 100 points on your own, will you? You'll never get to 100 points. I don't care how good you are. It doesn't matter how many sermons I preach or how many people I hand out food to or how many funerals I officiate. I could never come close to 100 points on my own, and neither can you. The only way you get there is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. You need His grace. You need His forgiveness. You need His salvation. So as I like to say it, you need to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life. The only way you make it to heaven is if He's in the driver's seat and He takes you there. Lesson number three, true repentance always produces fruit. True repentance always produces fruit. When we read that verse early on in the chapter that John came preaching a message of repentance and baptism, we talked about baptize. That word baptize means to immerse or to dunk. The word we haven't really explained yet this morning, at least, is that word repentance. To repent doesn't just mean to be sorry about your sin. To repent literally means to change your mind. To change your mind. And when you change your mind, it always results in a change in your life as well. I hear some papers rustling. If you could just hold on for two more minutes. Some of us in this room especially need to hear this part of the message today. I want us to be able to focus on what God has to say to us about repentance. You see, when people received John the Baptist's message, the first thing they did to demonstrate their repentance was to get baptized. Once again, this was countercultural. It was insulting to many of those in the crowd. But why did they do it? Because in their hearts, they had truly decided to change. It was evidence of authentic, sincere repentance. Sure, it's insulting, but I don't care if it's insulting. I'm going to do it because I want to show God that I am truly changed. I'm ready to follow the coming Messiah. You don't find people saying, well, no, I can't be baptized, John, because I came out to the desert. It's like 15 miles from my house, but I came out here today, but I forgot to bring my swim trunks. I didn't bring my swim trunks, so I, no, no excuses about not bringing their proper swimwear. No excuses about it being insulting. No excuses about, oh, I forgot to bring my towel. Sorry, I can't do it today. They were baptized because in their heart they wanted to truly change and do what God wanted them to do. Repentance always, 
always produces change. It always produces fruit. And once they were baptized, they asked John the question, uh, now what should we do to demonstrate our repentance? And John told them bluntly in verses 11 through 14, if you see someone in need, give him your jacket. If you're a tax collector or a soldier, you don't have to quit your job. Just stop using your job to cheat people. Stop strong-arming people and using your position to build your own bank account. Do what is right. Do what is good. Do what God wants you to do. So I ask you today, if you've truly chosen to repent from your sins and put Jesus Christ in charge of your life, is there fruit of repentance being demonstrated in your life today? Is there fruit of repentance in your life? Have you demonstrated your repentance by getting baptized? Are you reading God's Word and praying every day to demonstrate that it is now a priority? That is your new food. That is your new drink. You can't help but read God's Word and pray every day because that's your new sustenance for your spiritual life. Are you moving away from your old sin and closer to God's will for your life? True story. In 1948, in Hoyt, Kansas, three men robbed a bank. A few years later, one of those three men showed up at a nearby church, and he came up in front of the people. His name was Al Johnson. And Al Johnson confessed to that crowd of Christians what he had done a few years earlier in that heist. And he confessed to them everything, that he had partnered with these two guys and he'd robbed this bank and he was never caught by the authorities. And people in the crowd were wondering, well, why are you telling us and not the authorities? But as he continued his story, Al Johnson shared that earlier that week, He had done that very thing. He went to the authorities. He went to the police station, knowing full well that there was a good chance he would spend most of the rest of his life behind bars. He hadn't been caught, and there was no chance he'd be caught in the future if he didn't spill the beans. But God had convicted him so much when he became a Christian, he spilled the beans. He told him everything. And the statute of limitations had expired, so they were unable to prosecute him and send him to jail. But he was still so convicted by what he had done. Every dollar that he had stolen, he paid back to that bank. And he spent the rest of his life as a changed man. You see, what happened to Al Johnson is one of millions of examples of what happens when Jesus Christ comes into a life and radically changes you. And I want to speak to you today who have jumped through some religious hoops in the past, but have never truly changed your life, never truly repented and put Jesus Christ in charge of your life. Maybe as an infant you were sprinkled and you've told people all these years, I was baptized, but it was never your decision. It was your parents or your priests or your pastor's decision. Maybe you used to attend church and you just considered that, you know, chalking up one of your goody-goody items on your checklist so you can make it into heaven someday and no one ever told you going to church will never get you saved. Maybe you've put the money in the offering bag. Maybe you've uh, helped at a food kitchen. Maybe you've served the homeless and no one ever has ever told you you'll never get to 100 points by doing all of those things every single week of your life. The good that we do is a thank you gift for what Jesus Christ has already done for us. If you're here today and you've never truly put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life, 
I want to urge you to do that today. He does not want to be your co-pilot. He has no interest in riding shotgun in your life. He wants to be in the driver's seat. And if you put him in the driver's seat, that means you put him in the driver's seat of your thoughts. He should be the first thing we think about in the morning. He wants to be in the driver's seat of your speech. It's easy to keep from dropping F-bombs when you're in a church building. What about when you go home and someone cuts you off? He wants to be first in your speech. He wants to be first in your actions. He wants to be first in your finances. He wants to be first in your priorities. And if you sit here today and you realize, I've never truly changed. I didn't have a true change of mind that led to a tangible change in my behavior and in my life and in my speech and in my priorities. Today's the day to do that. You're not going to be able to ride anyone's shirt tails into heaven. You're going to have to stand before Almighty God on your own two feet. And the only way you ever get to 100 points is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And He does not force that grace upon you. You've got to reach out and receive it in faith and say, God, I'm ready to change. And I will live for you from this day forward until you call me home. And I won't have to stand before Peter and rattle off all the list of stuff I did. All I have to do is drop to my knees and say, the only reason I deserve to go through those gates is because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He always has only been the only way. There's no other way. So we stand right now and sing this song of invitation. One of our young ladies made the decision to accept Christ and get baptized today. We'll get to see her baptism in a few minutes. Maybe you have a decision to make. You made a decision for Christ, but you didn't demonstrate that repentance by getting baptized. Maybe you realize that you've slipped away from the Lord and He hasn't been that priority that He's wanted to be. We're going to have some helpers up front. I'm going to ask, uh, John, would you mind going to the back of the room? Uh, John's here in purple. He's going to be at the back of the room since Skip's not here today. You come to the front or come to the back. If we can pray with you for whatever you're going through, let us pray with you. If you want to talk to us about putting Jesus Christ in that driver's seat, we'd love to talk with you today as we sing the song of invitation. Stop. 
beginning and the end, beginning and the end, the God had three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, Lion and Lamb, Lion and Lamb, how great. God. 